turn to chapter 32 in the book of Genesis. On the overhead here is an ancient map from the 13th century. Medieval cartographers, map makers, like this one, sketched dragons at the edges of their maps, many times with three words underneath them. Sic, hunt, dragones. Translated, here be dragons. These three words were used to describe the outer boundaries where knowledge ended and speculation began. After drawing on all their knowledge, the mapmaker wrote these three words to convey that these areas were unexplored, they were unknown, and thus to be feared. The unknown is the basis for a lot of our fears. We don't like the dark because we don't know what's in the dark. Thus, we're scared. We don't know how we're going to pay the next bill. Thus, we fear. We don't know what the cancer tests are going to show. Thus, we're scared. In our text today, Jacob is returning to the promised land and he doesn't know what to expect from his brother, Esau. And thus, he is scared. Look with me at God's word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 32. Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanamim. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to your brother Esau and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people into who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all these deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with you, with only my staff, I cross this Jordan. 
and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely be good to you and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for the multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servant, every drove by itself. And said to the servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And those, and whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the presence that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him. And he himself stayed that night in the camp. Father God, I ask that you increase and I decrease, that you speak to your people through your powerful word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a man in Norfolk, England, who uncovered what he thought was an unexploded World War I bomb. He held on to it. For that, onto the cylinder for hours, afraid that if he let go, it would detonate. The first responders and the army bomb disposal experts rushed to the scene, but the drama came to a, an abrupt end when the bomb was identified. It was part of the hydraulic system of a European car called the Citron. There are times... There are times when we find ourselves frozen by fears that we think are real, but really are not. Things like something underneath your bed. Anybody jump to your bed as a child or perhaps last night from afar? (laughs) Or something on the other side of the shower curtain when you're taking a shower? Or a strange noise downstairs? And we even hold on to our fears like the number 13 or black cats crossing our path or a broken mirror. Irrational fears. But Jacob's fear was not irrational. Jacob's fear was based on something that he had done over 20 years ago. 20 years ago, he had been sent up to his uncle Laban's and now he was headed home headed back to the promised land, headed back to his family, headed back towards Esau. Coming home to Canaan where he lived, the brother that he had cheated out of his inheritance, 
the brother that he deceived and stole the family blessing from, the same brother who swore that he was going to kill him. He was going to bide his time. He was going to kill him. And he's headed home because, well, as we read here in, in the previous chapter, God told him to go. If you want to flip back to chapter 31, verse 3, we read there that the Lord appeared to him and said, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Return home, and I will be with you. And don't forget, I will be with you. But return home into the face of danger. Jacob is going home with this sense of impending doom. And right here is is a lesson for us. Right here is a lesson. Sometimes God will, in fact, guide you, lead you toward what you fear. Into what we think is danger. He will guide you towards your fears for a purpose. Augustine wrote, Fear is the response of the human heart when it's one thing is threatened. Listen to that again. Fear is the response of the human heart when it's one thing is threatened. In other words, fear is generated when something that is very important to you is in danger. So if your fear, if your, rather, if your one thing is comfort and security, when that one thing is threatened, when finances dry up, when a relationship is gone or in danger, you will fear. If power or prestige or reputation is your one thing, you will fear losing your job or looking bad in front of other people. If your family or kids are your one thing, you'll be scared to let them go. Whatever that means in your family. But here's the one thing. If Christ becomes your one thing, If Christ becomes your one thing, then your life is filled less and less with fear. That's why we read the refrain over and over and over again in the Old Testament, the Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. Does that sound familiar? The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. The Lord is with me, I will not be afraid. He says it over and over and over again. If Christ becomes your one thing, Fear dissipates. I mean, think, just pause and think of the massive transformation of the apostles. Why? Why were they scared one minute, and then the next minute, they were standing before the Sanhedrin and saying, uh, you know, I have to fear God instead of man. Go ahead and do what you're going to do. I think of Paul standing before Agrippa and Felix preaching the gospel, knowing that this man could just put him to death. As Christ becomes more and more central in our life, Hebrews 13.6 becomes more and more real. 
It says, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Wouldn't that be wonderful to be able to say that and mean it? What can anybody do to me? What can the world do to me? That's when you know that Christ is your one thing. And so what Yahweh does over and over again in our lives to to displace the things we put ahead of him is he guides us, actually, towards our fears. To displace, or maybe even, first of all, to expose your one thing. He will lead you, as the Bible puts it, into the shadow of the valley of the shadow of the death, Moni. That's how the Bible puts it. So that you will see that he is not your one thing. So that you will see, perhaps, that he is with you. So that you will see that he is bigger than what you fear. Now, the cartographers understood this because what they did is at the top of maps, they also put Jesus Christ and his angels. Sure, they drew dragons to show this is to be feared, but they understood Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is powerful. If you have Jesus as your one thing, you can sail into the unknown. God is sovereign over your fears. And although you're heading into the unknown, God is with you. And this is exactly what God was showing Jacob in the first two verses. Did you catch that? In the first two verses, he starts back, and what does Yahweh send? Angels. Now, we're tempted to think that this is like two or three or four angels. But that word there that we read, this is God's camp. That same word can be translated host or army. God sent his army. He wanted to show Jacob that he was with him in a big way going home. That he was at the top of the map. He wanted to remind him that he really had nothing to fear. That even though he was going back to face Esau, whom he had probably been dreading for 20 years. Have you ever had a fear that you've hung on to for 20 years? Or years, let's say? It tends to build, doesn't it? It tends to get bigger. It tends to be all-consuming. It tends to to cloud your vision. It's at the periphery, and, and sometimes it just overtakes your vision. God's army was going with him. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. That's what God is telling Jacob at this time. And this is the spiritual reality for believers throughout time. If we had eyes to see the spiritual realm around us and how much God cares for us, if we had those eyes... And you know what? Sometimes in Scripture, what's wonderful is he gives us, our ancient brothers and sisters, that vision so that we can gain confidence from it. Like in 2 Kings 6. In 2 Kings 6, uh, the Syrian army wants to kill Elisha, and they surround him at the, at the town of Dothan. And Elisha and his servant wake up, 
And they go out, and there's the Syrian army. And Elisha's servant is terrified. Elisha's servant is terrified. And Elisha looks to him, looks at him, and you know what he says? Listen to these words. Do not be afraid. Those with us are more than those are with them. You know what Elisha does? He prays. And what does God do? He opens the servant's eyes. And what does the servant see? The mountains are full of God's army. Listen to what we're told in 1 John 4. 4. He who is with you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Here's my question to you. Do you believe that? When you're facing your fears, do you believe that? Do we believe by faith what our ancient brothers saw, that God is with us? Does fear rule your heart or does faith? That's the question. Well, as they say, the proof is in the pudding. All you have to do is look at how you live. All you have to do is look at how a believer lives their life. And you see if they really believe that. Are they living by faith or by fear? Or put another way, are they living as a child of God or as a functional orphan? Are you living as a child of God or as an orphan? Living as a functional orphan refers to a spiritual condition in which one professes outwardly to know and trust God as Father, but lives a life that contradicts that statement. Let me read that again. The living as a functional orphan refers to a spiritual condition in which one professes outwardly to know and trust God as Father, but lives a life that contradicts those words. And in verses 6 through 21, what we see is Jacob living as a functional orphan. We see him living a life that is contrary to his words. Jacob was just treated like a son in verses 1 and 2. God showed him his army. He had nothing to fear. Yahweh is saying, he who is with you is greater than he who is with your brother. I've got you. You're mine. You're protected. You saw my army. You're my son. And by the way, that's the same language he uses with us. Yet look at what we see Jacob doing, living like an orphan in doubt, fear, and self-sufficiency. We see him living in doubt, in fear and self-sufficiency. First, you see him living as an orphan that does not trust. An orphan does not trust. In verses 3 through 8, we see that. He sends his messengers to Esau. Because why? He wants to know the danger he's in. He's just been shown the army of the living God, which, by the way, angels is the same word, messenger, 
as he sends the messengers. So he has sent thousands and thousands of messengers to say, you're okay. And Jacob goes, you know what? I'm going to send a couple messengers just to check this out. I'm scared. He wants to know if he's in danger. He wants to know if Esau is still bloodthirsty. He wants to know what he's walking into. And they return with the news that Esau is coming with 400 men. And what's Esau's reaction? Verse 7. Terribly distressed and afraid. He's coming with 400 men. He did not forget. Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. There's the story of a man who was traveling west in the 18th century during winter and came to a frozen river without a bridge. I'm sure you've heard this anecdote. He started across the river with confidence, but as he got closer to the center of the river, he became less and less confident, so he got down on his knees and then on his hands and knees, and he was going along just inching along out out of terror that he was going to fall through. And then he heard behind him some noise coming out of the dusk, and he turned around and he looked, and there, passing by him, was a man on a sleigh with four horses. Think of that for a minute. Jacob was terrified returning home, inching on all fours, God shows him the angelic host, the army, with him. The four-horse sled, if you will. And when he heard that Esau was coming with 400 men, what does he do? He gets down on his hands and knees and inches forward in terror again. This is not only a picture of what we so often do, but it also, it also proves the truth that you and I continue to struggle with. And that truth is that we think is true, but it is not true. That seeing will give us more faith. Don't we all think that? If I see it, I'll have more faith. If I see a miracle, that'll increase my faith. If I can touch something, if I can see something, I'll have more faith. But don't we see in Scripture again and again and again that that's not true? Look at the example here with Jacob. Think of the Israelites in the desert, in the wilderness. Just ponder that for a minute. Here they are wandering around. They have the pillar of fire by day and the cloud or cloud of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night. They have manna showing up on a daily basis. And what's the picture in Exodus and Numbers? Faithlessness, right? Faithlessness. They, they could feel the heat of the pillar of fire. And yet they still didn't believe. Sight does not bring faith, brothers and sisters. It is an orphan mentality. It is a lie of our flesh. And if the devil can get us to believe it, that's a lie of the devil. 
Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the conviction of what? What we can see, touch. It's what we can't see. That's the basis of faith. God saw Jacob's army but still didn't trust. The apostles saw the miracle after miracle after miracle and still doubted. Peter, James, and John saw the transfigured Christ and at the end, what did they do? Fled. Sight does not grow faith. A person can see and still live like an orphan. See, the spiritual orphan is unsure of his place in the family and of God as their father. Spiritual orphans tend to feel uncovered and unprotected. Orphans doubt. They always feel that they might be abandoned. Orphans feel that God does not, is not really with them. That they, will not, that they will at some point be returned to the orphanage. Or put in spiritual terms, that they are always in danger of losing their salvation. That the Father's love is temporary and fluctuating. That God cannot be trusted. That's spiritual orphanhood. But God tells us in Romans 8.15, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Notice the wording. We've received a spirit of adoption as sons to whom I cry, Abba, Father, Daddy. There's no fluctuation in his love. Scripture tells us there's no danger of losing your salvation. Whom I have in my hand, no man can pluck out. And that seems quotations to be what Jacob is realizing in verses 9 through 12. The messengers return with bad news and Jacob drops on all fours, so to speak, and prays. But the question is, is he praying a prayer of faith or of fear? Because orphans live lives filled with fear. Commentators are actually kind of split on this prayer. On the one hand, this prayer is incredibly orthodox. You read it, you see humility, I am not worthy. You see truth, God is faithful and steadfast. He asks for all the right things, right? Remember your promises, Lord. Remember your promises to my grandfather and to my father and that, that I gave, I got. And deliver me from my fear of Esau. Jacob could be showing faith in Yahweh in this prayer. Yet the question, I think, has to be asked. Is Jacob showing trust in God? Or is this a Hail Mary prayer? Is he putting aside his fear? Or is this a foxhole prayer of an orphan? Is this a last-ditch effort? Or is Jacob actually depending on God? Because that's really what prayer is, right? It's depending on God. It's saying, here's my fear. God, you take it. You're at the top of the map. I can't handle it. 
That's really what prayer is. It's depending on God. It's saying, I can't do it, but you can. I need help. And you can be trusted. I have nothing to fear because of you. You are at the top of the map. It's believing John Piper's last uh, lifetime verse of Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The reason I think, the reason I think this is a foxhole prayer is because of the context. It's because of the context it's being, it's being prayed into. Look at what he does right after praying. He tries to buy his way into Esau's heart, doesn't he? He's acting like an orphan again because orphans fall always fall back. Orphans always fall back into a works mentality. Or that's that's an orphan mentality right there. What can I do? Spiritual orphans think in terms of doing something. Here we find Jacob sending wave after wave after wave of gifts to Esau, don't we? Goats and lambs and rams and camels and cows and donkeys. With one intent, verse 20. For he thought, I may appease him with the presents that go ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. He wants to purchase Esau's mercy. He wants to buy his forgiveness. Here are these 550 plus animals in waves. I want to earn his acceptance. I want to earn my way back into Esau's good graces. See, an orphan always feels that they need to ingratiate themselves. An orphan feels the need to do something in order to be accepted. What can I do in order to be accepted by you? Tell me what I need to do. Put in spiritual terms, an orphan always feels they need to earn forgiveness. A spiritual orphan feels they need to do something to be forgiven. What? Give me something to do to be forgiven. And right here is the power of this passage. And I think it's the purpose of this passage. Esau will have none of it. Look with me at chapter 33, verses 1 through 4. It says, And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming. Imagine the fear. And 400 men with him. So he divided his children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times, bowing, 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 until he came near his brother. But Esau... But Esau ran to meet him. Embraced him 
and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. What the orphan in each one of us needs to realize is that forgiveness is unconditional. Forgiveness is totally unconditional. Jacob has sent 550 animals to satisfy Esau's rage. He was thinking, how can I soften Esau up? How can I bow to show my sorrow? How many times can I do that? How can I get back into Esau's good graces? And we see here that Esau extends unconditional forgiveness. Unconditional forgiveness. He runs to meet his brother. And the text is beautiful. It's a beautiful scene. He embraces him and kisses him on his neck. For my money, it's one of the most powerful pictures of forgiveness in the Old Testament. Esau forgives Jacob unconditionally, even though he was hurt so deeply by his brother. Think about that. He was hurt so deeply. His twin. Even though his twin brother took everything from him. Even though the person closest to him stabbed him in the back. Esau accepts Jacob back unconditionally. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take a great theologian or a good mind to, to see the similarities between this and Jesus' parable in Luke 15 of the prodigal son coming home. Father sees him from afar, picks up his, his skirts and runs to him and puts the ring on his finger, the robe around his shoulders, and the sandals on his feet. And the son had the plan to come back and work his way back into his good graces, but the father will have none of it. He allows him right back in. The son who wished him dead, he allows back in. The son who hurt him so deeply. And he ran and embraced and kissed him. No mention of the past. Notice that here, Luke 15. No indication of wrath. I think they're both trying to teach the same point. You can never earn forgiveness. You can't earn it. Forgiveness is absolutely free. Forgiveness is given. Forgiveness is granted. The prodigal son had a plan to buy his way back. Father won't accept it, doesn't even hear it. Jacob has already hatched his plan, right? Sending all the waves and waves of gifts, bowing down before him. And Esau will have none of it. Do you see the beauty of this passage? The power of it? See, our plan is always, our heart default position is always one of works. It's always one of a plan to get into good graces. How can I buy my way back into God's heart? I've sinned. What do I need to do? 
I don't know Christ, but I know I'm, I'm a sinner. What do I need to do? Give me the three steps. We can buy our way back into God's heart, we think. I'll try my best to live a moral life. I'll do that, and he'll accept me. I'll give sacrificially. You know, my hand will open up. I'll give. That will do it. I'll serve. I'll give my life. Believe me, brothers and sisters, it does, is not, it is something I think about. Am I doing this? Do I, did I give my life in some way in my heart? To buy forgiveness. And if you've never thought about that yourself, here's your opportunity. These are all good things, people. These are all really good things to try and live a moral life, to give sacrificially, to give your life, to give your time, treasure, and talent. These are all things that are in the Bible. But they're all done in the shadow of the cross. Not to, not to buy any kind of acceptance or forgiveness. But as a response to them. Dear sweet J. Vernon, J. Vernon McGee. You know J. Vernon McGee? I wish I could do his accent. There are only two kinds of religion in the world, he says. You can list every ism, every cult, every religion under one category. They all say, do, do, do. Only Christianity says, done. It's done. And that's what the gospel teaches us, is that you can never earn God's forgiveness. That was done by Jesus Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago. That was the purpose of his humanity. Why, why Why couldn't he just come down, be on the cross, and go back up? Why did he have to be born and live? So that he could live a life of perfect submission that we can't. So that he would live the life of perfect obedience that we fall short of all the time. So that he could live a life of perfect sinlessness. That has been done. That has been accomplished, not by you or me, but by Jesus Christ. He fulfills the standard that God sets, perfection. The gospel also teaches us that we can never satisfy God's rage. Here's the difference between Esau and God. Esau's rage abated over the years, didn't it? Time did kind of make his, his desire to kill his brother Go away. We have to pause here and realize the truth that Scripture teaches us. It's that God's wrath over the sin of man, God's wrath over your sin, does not just go away. Romans 2.5 teaches us that because of your hard and impenitent heart, 
You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Wrath, God's wrath just doesn't go away over time. He's not like us. There's no cooling off period. His wrath towards your sin will be satisfied in one of two ways. Let me say this again. God's wrath towards your sin will be satisfied in one of two ways. Either by you on the day of judgment when his wrath will be poured out on you or by Jesus Christ. By what Christ has done for you on the cross, absorbing the penalty for your and my sin, taking the full rage of God, drinking that cup of wrath that he was referencing in the garden, if this cup can pass, taking it all so that you don't have to, so that I don't have to. In biblical Christianity, there's nothing you can do to earn God's forgiveness. It's been done for you. And all you have to do is respond to his open arms. I'll close with a quote from C.S. Lewis. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror. The thing we most need in the thing we want to hide from. He's our only possible ally, and we've made ourselves his enemy. Some talk as if to meet the gaze of an absolute good God would be fun. They need to think again. There's still only one, they are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great danger according to how you react to it. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for your word. Change our hearts through you, Holy Spirit, and the power and promise of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.